Holy Spirit, you inspired scripture. And in the case of this letter, Paul sat and he thought and he felt things and saw things and uh, felt stirred with things and he, he, he wrote it down, or at least he, he said it out loud and someone wrote it down for him. But that very act of him saying out loud and it being written down was your way of delivering your word, the word of God through the Holy Spirit to us here today. And so we approach scripture with respect and with hearts that come to be taught, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Because I've just finished a series of 18 sermons on faith, and that was topical preaching, where you take a run of thought, a subject, a heading, and subheadings, and you think of scriptures and remember scriptures and look up scriptures to support those things along the way. It's a valid method of preaching and teaching, but it's not the only way. So today I'm coming back to a way that I haven't done for a while, which is to preaching through Scripture, through a book of the Bible, section by section. It's a different approach and method. It makes me deal with all that Scripture says. Any preacher preaches what he feels on a particular week, week by week, though claiming, of course, he's being led by the Spirit, of course, will tend to go back again and again to what he knows, what he's familiar with, what he finds easy, and what he's comfortable with, and people actually are comfortable with hearing it because they've heard it many times already. Some too may choose sermons and subjects that gain them some advantage, that increase their personal popularity, their influence, their income, their status. But preaching through scripture book by book is far more demanding. It takes hard study to follow up the argument of a whole book from beginning to end. You need to read the book through a number of times to keep, make sure you see the flow of it. And the verse by verse, don't stand out. I know we like to quote verses. We all do. We, verses strike, stand out to us, and God hits us with that truth that day. But these verses do not stand alone. They're like gemstones set into one band. It also puts before a preacher and then before his hearers passages that he would otherwise not, never quite get around to dealing with. I remember the time I was preaching through Matthew. Not here, before here. And... I came to the passage where Jesus talks about sexual immorality and divorce. I don't think, oh my word, what a thing to preach on a Sunday. But it needs doing. Preaching some passage of scripture may not make a preacher popular. They may not be what people want to hear. But I settled this week on Colossians. thought about Galatians, but came on Colossians. We'll go through over coming weeks. Today's sermon may take us down towards the end of chapter 1, depending on time. But because we're looking at the book paragraph by paragraph, I find that in preaching and teaching, I often say more than I plan to say, because you know, I see the way that you respond, I think, oh, you need to understand a little bit more of that. Anyway, but we'll stop when we get to the end of a paragraph and pick it up again in the next week or in two weeks' time. Colossae, the town of Colossae, is in what is now modern-day Turkey. And in what is modern-day Turkey, there were two main groups of churches in the Roman provinces. Rome ran the whole area, of course. The province of Asia, which was on the Greek side of Turkey, and that side where Istanbul is. And there were seven churches there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which are the same seven churches Jesus wrote letters to in Revelation. And Colossae was close to Laodicea, but it's not in that group. It's just across the border in a neighboring province, but only 20, 30 miles away. And then in a big band down the middle of modern-day Turkey, there was a province called Galatia, which had Pisidian Antioch. That's an Antioch in, in Turkey, not in Syria, because there's another Antioch in Syria. Um, 
and a town called Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And, and the letter to the Galatians, which we're not doing, was written to that group of churches. And they were the, some of the first churches that Paul and Barnabas planted into the Greek-speaking world there. So, about AD 60, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he writes three letters together. They're a group of letters. One to a man called Philemon, asking him to receive a runaway slave called Onesimus, who's with Paul at the time, back to his household. It's a very touching letter when you understand that. One here to the Colossians, and another one, which we call the letter to the Ephesians, but it was written to that group of churches, to the, all that group of seven churches. So remember, Colossae is just outside there, so there's a whole group of churches in what was called Asia. They're going to receive this letter, and it, we'd label it Ephesians. And he sends these letters out on the road with two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, I'm not going to read a Bible commentary to you. I'm not trying to explain every word or phrase of Scripture. I, I'm going to try and concentrate on three questions because I'm preaching it. You know, Okay, that was a bit scholarly we just did, but you know what I mean. Three questions. These are useful questions. They're useful questions when you read the Bible yourself. What does this tell us about the Lord himself? Because the Scripture contains God's self-revelation. He is who he says he is. He is what he says he is. What does this say about us? That may be positive, that may be negative. Uh, what does that say about us? What does it say about those who are not yet in Christ, who are unsaved? What does it say about those of us who are saved? And that's where freedom in Christ comes in. What is the Lord saying to us or to me? What directive is he giving me today? What encouragement is he giving me today? What should I believe? What should we or I do? So here we go, Colossians. <clears throat> bit by bit. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, <clears throat> who, of course, is a co-worker. That's why he mentions Timothy. Others are with him. We know that because he sends the letters by the hand. But Timothy's a co-worker. He's part of the apostolic team. To the saints and faithful or believing brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace only come from God. They're not found anywhere else. And here it's God the Father and God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ, do bring grace and peace to us. And grace and peace are the result of the gospel. The work of the gospel in us is to give us grace and bring us to peace. Working backwards through verse 2, Paul calls these people brethren, which is here gender inclusive. I've come to the conclusion recently, I think it works, that where the Bible, where the Bible is gender specific or distinctive, it is clearly so. It, talks about men and then about women, talks about husbands and then it talks about wives and so on. But where it isn't ex uh, distinctive or uh, uh, specific, then it's inclusive. He also calls them faithful or believing. They are those who believe the gospel, who trust in Jesus. We've just ended that series on faith, what it is to believe and to continue in faith. Then he, but first of all, because I'm working backwards, he calls them saints, to the saints the Lord's holy ones. Now we know some church traditions make saints a sort of elite or superclass of Christians who get sainted after they've dead and been gone a long time and then they, if you're a Catholic, you've prayed to them and they've done, made, done a miracle. That's not in the scriptures at all. The Bible names all those who believe as saints. They have been chosen and called by the Lord to be his. They are holy to him. Most of the apostolic letters in the New Testament describe Christians as saints, even if the writer then goes on a little later to challenge the way they live as being not particularly saintly. First of all, you are saints. 
Secondly, let's fix this. Let's sort this out, because this doesn't really add up. When reasoning with people about the things that need to be brought into godly order, the Apostle Paul never starts with that negative or correction, but firstly affirms who they are in the grace of God and the kingdom of God. After that, there are some points that Paul uses at various times to appeal for a change of mind in life. And I'll give you a shorter list of them. I could write a long one. Maybe I should. These are the sort of questions that Paul asks of people. Don't you know you were crucified with Jesus? Don't you know you were raised with him? Don't you realize how bad was your condition before you came to faith and that only God could save you? Don't you know that God has rescued you from your old way of life and forgiven you all your sins? Don't you know that God has chosen you and called you his holy ones? Don't you know that God lives in you by the Holy Spirit so that you are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit, a living place of God? Don't you know that God is with you and for you? Amen. Then Paul gives thanks. He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the gospel of truth. Let me just read on again. Which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. That's a long sentence there. We give thanks to God the Father, praying for you. Paul is continually praying for them, giving thanks for them. He's now in prison. He has the whole waking day to pray, if he wants to. When he was free, moving around, the evenings would be spent in someone's home preaching and teaching the disciples as they gathered for a meal after nightfall when the working day was done and he would be with the disciples night after night. But during the day when many were working, Paul would gather those who could join him and they would talk together. He would train people particularly and they would also pray together. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Some weeks ago I talked about faith and love. They are two connections. They will cross wired. Faith in Jesus leads to love for the saints. You can't have that without that. The two are all completely connected. Jesus taught that. John, picking up on the words of Jesus, rams it home again and again and again in 1 and 2 John. So someone who wants to have a solitary faith and be away from everybody else and I'm not bothered about the church, I'm not bothered about other Christians, you need to have a deep, deep think about your attitude. Love for Jesus Faith in Jesus, sorry, leads to love for the saints. And then the word of truth, the gospel is according to inscription declared by the Lord's messengers. It produced hope in them and is producing fruit in them. Hope is an expectation of future blessing, future grace, future glory. Wherever in the world the truth of Jesus declared, that will happen. It will produce hope and it will produce fruit. The good news grows. As Jesus talked about, his kingdom was growing. It wouldn't all arrive at one time. It would grow steadily through the nations, through the ages. It hasn't finished growing yet. And thank God that in Alpha and in the group that, uh, that Joe's running on a Sunday evening here, people are coming in to hear the gospel and be taught the truth. The kingdom of God is growing. In the book of Acts, the spread of the gospel and the increase of the church is even described by the apostles as the word of God increasing. You think, well... 
were they finding more to say? Well, in a way, perhaps. But what they had, their view was so that God's word was so important that it wasn't their preaching that was being successful, but the word of God was bearing fruit. The word of God was increasing. And in the word of God, the word of the gospel is what really matters. It's good to have your personal story, your testimony. But the most important thing you can communicate to another person is the truth about Jesus, the gospel. And of course, Paul had not been to Colossae, but a man called Epaphras, who Paul had seen converted in Ephesus, went there, preached the gospel, spent quite a bit of time there, and then eventually he's made his way back to Paul and he's brought a report about all that's happened there. And uh, when Paul says that Epaphras is a minister in Christ, it doesn't have a capital M. It just means a servant, okay? Servant. There's no capitalization or fancy title implied. And these people had love in the spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? It's not just, oh, I feel this or I, 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 I feel, you know, I like you. Or They had love in the spirit. The spirit produced this love in them. The outcome of the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost was not just inspired speech, speaking in other languages, prophesying, inspired preaching by Peter. It created them a great change of heart and a, and a, com a complete overhaul of their values. Such was the work of the Spirit in that community in Jerusalem at that time that some people went and sold property to help those who were in need. Great grace was upon them. This was happening. People were selling property and bringing the money, money to the apostles and the apostles were all organized and that was distributed to help, to serve, to supply, to support those in need. There was a couple there called Ananias and Sapphira. You know where I'm going now, don't you? They sold the property but pretended to donate the whole sum. They in fact had decided they wouldn't donate the whole sum. They'd hold some back and the Holy Spirit revealed that to Peter and they were judged by the Lord. Now that may seem harsh, but I think that the atmosphere at that time was so full of grace and generosity, the Lord would not allow it to be spoiled. The Colossians too knew something of this love in or by the Spirit. It was Spirit-motivated, Spirit-fire burning this love. And then Paul prays, and Paul's prayers in his letters are powerful things. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his love, of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul prayed for people when he was not only uh, present to minister to them, but when he knew he'd never see their faces again. They were still in his heart. He still prayed for them. The scope and content of Paul's praying is very large. He prays big prayers, long sentences even. We can read them as examples for those of us who want to pray for people. What was pray Paul praying for? That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Real wisdom comes from understanding given by the Spirit 
understanding gained through Scripture. What is spiritual is in the Scriptures almost always meaning of, by, from the Holy Spirit. It's not about your spirit. The word spiritual isn't referring to your spirit. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. He brings you spiritual understanding. The knowledge of God's will is wisdom. It'll keep you from being foolish, from doing ridiculous things. And the Spirit uses Scripture to teach us wisdom. Oh, that our hearts were truly set on wisdom. That you may walk worthy of the Lord. That walk means the way of life. It's just the Bible way of saying, the way you live. How you conduct your life. A whole lifestyle that is worthy of our God and Savior. Again, because that's what we're called to. That's what we've been saved to. That you may be fully pleasing to Him. What could be more use in life than understanding and doing what pleases the Lord? But what could be better for you to enjoy life to the full than to know and to do what pleases God? Fruitful in every good work. Fruitfulness is not some abstract, ethereal thing. It's observed actions and attitudes and behavior and deeds. That you may be increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. We don't need more stuff. Many of us already live with information overload. <laughs> What we need is to increase in the knowledge of God. To know Him better. That would make a whole heap of difference to the way we live. To know Him better. That you may be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. Made strong by the glorious power and might of God. In Bible language, power is related to authority. To decide and to act. But might, strength, is the ability to do what you've intended to do. God lacks neither authority nor ability. So we can at all times and in every situation be strengthened by him. So that, as it says here, with all patience and long-suffering, with joy. We endure, we go on, we don't faint, we don't quit. And we do so because we are receiving and benefiting in the joy of the Lord. You can have joy in the valley of death. I've seen it. I've been with one or two Christians when they died, and they died with joy. That may seem really weird to you. I tell you, it's worth seeing. They are going to their master, and they are pleased to be doing so. How much more in the difficulties of life should be those who stick it with it, keep going, endure, go on with joy? Giving thanks to the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. As the Colossians and we live in the supply of the wisdom and knowledge and strength of God, we give thanks. We keep going and we give thanks, not for our success, but for his grace. You know, it's my victory, we sang earlier, because it's his victory first. Right? We're heirs with God, not through our earning our way, but by the adoption of God by grace. It's not about us making the grade. You know, he has qualified us. That means we got our record book stamped when we didn't do anything to deserve it. He has qualified us. Together with all the saints, we have an internal inheritance ahead of us in and with our Lord Jesus. Let me just, since this is all about Paul's praying for the Colossians, praying and Thanksgiving, let, let, let's think about praying for a moment. You know, some people like to pray kind of like, you know, they're always in kind of warfare mode, you know. And there are moments for that. Yes, of course there are. 
for some, it's always they, they, they get into a kind of like a, 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 a slightly kind of negative complaining kind of thing of a why isn't it like this and why isn't it like that? And there are times to lament and there are times to inquire of the Lord. Yes, there are. There are. But I think there's a there's a standard. There's there's a there's a normal level of praying that we should live at and go to those places at other times. Do you know where I get that from? From Jesus. Matthew 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. But you, when you pray, I, sorry, assuredly I say to you, they have a reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, private space. When you shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. When you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Just saying the same thing over and over again. And of course, some traditions do that. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And he gives us the pattern prayer. What picture does that present to you? Private space, you're there, but God turns up. Your father's with you and sees you and is listening to you. Anybody want to come up with an image of what that's like? like could I suggest it's like a child with their father? In a little private corner? A child with their father? How does Jesus take, label him? Your father. Could speak to your father. The, 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 the prayer starts, uh, Father or my father in heaven. But he's actually said he's going to be there with you too. God can do that, you know. He's already there with them. So here, God is not pictured to us as being remote from a distance, looking on. He's there with us, listening to us as we pray. Jesus taught us to be persistent in praying and asking. Asking, seeking, knocking, being persistent. But we're not raiding heaven. We're not trying to break into heaven and steal something or bring it down to earth. We're asking a good father to do, to do good and to give good and to give us the Holy Spirit and to give us good things and give good things to those around us, those we care for. When we're under pressure, we may raise our voices. When we're sad or disappointed, we may lament or even cry. When we're indignant against sin and injustice of many kinds, we may express anger. But whatever we're going through and however we, we are reacting, the truth doesn't change. Our father is not somewhere else remote from us. He is with us. He hears our voices, our very thoughts, our emotions, and he is not unwilling. He is generous. He's not sympathetic, but in and through Jesus who experienced all life as we experience it, he knows what we feel. So Paul prays for these people. And then comes this passage, and I need to do this today, and then we'll stop. We come to this passage that says Christ above everything, the top and bottom. It's a lovely image, but a bit small. Christ above everything. The supremacy of Christ. One, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This will be a good way to, to close today. Here we go. He, Jesus, Messiah, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible 
and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. That is, he is the beginning, not the church's beginning, he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, the first place. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on heaven or things, sorry, things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Okay, here's the headlines. Let's go through them again. Jesus is the image of the invisible of God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel made false images for themselves, and they idols, false gods. But the Roman Empire was full of images because in the first century, people in the Roman Empire knew all about images because the emperors had their statues erected in every significant town and place. When people went to the market, when people go to the temple, they saw the statue of the emperor. And when they saw the statue or image of the emperor, they knew who was over them, who was their lord. In fact, the statue was in a sense the presence of the emperor in that place. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in 2012 to 2014, we went through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings together. That's a long time ago now. Early on in that book, we learned that Jesus has at all times been the image of God to us. Throughout all Human history, Jesus has been the image of God. He's the one who comes and presents God to us. That God has a face, that God has a physical appearance in front of us. Before his incarnation, Jesus would take on a physical appearance and appear as the messenger of Yahweh. But then he came and took on not an appearance, but a real human physical body and human nature. He was made incarnate. In the opening statements of John's Gospel comes this, No one has ever seen God. The only God or begotten God, some versions, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has always been the revealer, the communicator of the Godhead. The testament of Jesus himself is that no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. But Jesus has revealed him. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That cannot mean that he was the first thing made in creation because the next verse says that he, he was the maker of all things. Uh, the JWs tried to make out that he was the first thing made. Rather, it points to Jesus, the Son of God, being eternally and only begotten of the Father. There was never a time when the Father did not have the Son and the Son did not have the Father. And the Holy Spirit related to both the Father and the Son. The firstborn Son of God from eternity was the creator of all things. So the firstborn, this word firstborn turns up a few times here. It's just a way of saying Jesus. Jesus the firstborn stood over all creation. He was not of creation. He was before creation. So some religious people who turn up here at the doorstep need to hear that verse read properly to them from time to time. For by Jesus... All things in heaven and on earth were made, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. Not only the physical creation was made by him, but also the 
the, the invisible creation. The, 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 the hordes of angels, the angelic beings were made by him. And there are visible and invisible forces that in different ways govern or influence the world we live in. But yet they were created by him. Paul uses these phrases, thrones, dominions, principalities, the powers, and a few other letters, and with some variations, but never in the same order. So you can't say that's the order they come in because he chooses a different order in all the time. They point to authorities. Some of those labels may point to human authorities. Some, we think, point to superhuman authorities. Whatever the nature of those rulers, and that's a study I'm doing on my own at the moment, whoever they are, if there is a principality over a particular nation or government, guess what? Jesus made that. It's something he made that has gone wrong in itself. So who still has authority over them? Jesus. Because he's their maker. And he will be their judge. That's a point that the Colossians need to hear because later on we realized they were being influenced by false teachers who made a great deal about angels and demons. It was their big thing. And Paul's saying, forget about that nonsense. You don't need to pry into angelic things and demonic things. Because Jesus made them all and he's still the ruler of them. Jesus is before all things. And in him all things consist. Jesus was before creation. Then he was at creation, creating all things, bringing them to order. Now he is the sustainer. He maintains them. The solar system revolves. The world turns on its axis. The sun burns its hydrogen energy and provides heat and light. Photosynthesis works in plants. Hemoglobin works in my body to carry oxygen around. We can digest and utilize various foodstuffs. These are not lucky cosmic accidents. God made them to work that way. And they continue to work because he authorizes them to be. They are the design of God and the hand and work of God. He sustains all things. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son upholds all things by the word of his power or authority, which is one day when the Lord says, It's finished, that's it. It's the end of the age. It'll all change. This, this world will crumble and be destroyed by fire and become a whole new world. To put it simply, all this works. All the cosmos works in all of its infinite complexity because he is still at work within his creation. Jesus is the head of the, the body, the church. From creation, Paul jumps to church. Not just one local church, the whole universal church. Jesus is the head of the body, his church. Not all that calls itself, itself church is his church. Because some things that are called church do not own or honor Jesus as head. And only begotten God, the Son. So they can't truly be church. Remember, Jesus is the head of the church. Not a, not a pastor, not a bishop, not an archbishop, not an apostle, or even a king or queen. Only Jesus is the head of the church. The church belongs to him. And it's his body through which he continues to be in this world, speaking and working. Put another way, no matter who thinks they're in charge, Jesus reigns. And over his church in particular. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul's already dealt with creation, so what beginning is this now? It's the beginning of the recreation, the new age, the restoration, the remaking. In the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, the new world was beginning. We're still headed there. 
The resurrection of Jesus was the start of the new age, the new deal. The kingdom of God is at work, but won't be complete until the last day when Jesus will raise the dead and bring his people to an eternal kingdom within a restored creation. Everything will come back to the order, plan, and glory that God intended from the very beginning. Jesus is the firstborn back from the dead, alive from the dead. In that sense, he's pictured as our elder brother. He's God's heir, but we, are, we believe he's our co-heirs with him. And his resurrection to glory is the guarantee of our resurrection to glory and inheritance with him. That's why we Christians can have a very different view of death than other people have. Jesus studied all things. That's right. Jesus is first over all things. That in everything he might have the preeminence. Because we know Philippians 2 says that Jesus, he humbled himself to become a servant. He humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, giving them the name that is of every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When we say that all the glory and honor and glory and power belong to him, we mean it. Not one bit of praise belongs to us. We gather on a Sunday morning not to pat each other on the back and congratulate ourselves. We're sensible people and upright people. We gather to praise the name of Jesus, our Savior, King, and God for his glorious grace. All the fullness of God dwelt and dwells in Jesus. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. He did not give up any bit of his deity. He just chose to submit himself to the Father. So Jesus could say to his disciples, he has seen me, has seen the Father. In Jesus, God has reconciled to himself all things in heaven and on earth. Paul says in Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the world of men, but also the whole world, the whole cosmos. One day the whole creation will be brought back to God's design. And what is not reconciled and restored will be consumed. And then this last phrase, we'll be finishing out. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, that phrase captures, it catches me. Made peace is, follows up reconciled in the previous sentence. Reconciliation produces peace. And peace is not just the end of hostilities, it's the building and enjoyment of relationship. Blood is a powerful word in the New Testament. Blood is, in the New Testament is connected to sacrifice. It's not just the fact that Jesus bled and died, but his blood and death were the sacrifice made for our forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. All the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep were pointing to that day at Golgotha. And since Christ has bled and died, there are now no more sacrifices needed. The Old Covenant is now obsolete as we read clearly in Galatians and Hebrews. Here Paul writes the blood of his cross. That's a powerful image. The place of the cross was the altar of sacrifice where the blood of Jesus was shed. That wicked, cruel, wooden beams. People can go beyond scripture, you know, when they speak of the blood or of the cross. Some hymns and songs do that. Some older Pentecostal traditions do that. Early Pentecostals would chant, believe me, they used to do this, some of them, would chant for a long, long time, just the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. I mean, there's no reason on earth to do that. The work of the cross 
was finished at the cross. Here's the clue. Jesus said it out loud before he said something else then, very quiet. With a loud voice, a dying man on the cross filled his lungs and said, It is finished. The blood of Jesus does not still flow. When I was a kid, communion services, there'd always be Mr. So-and-so would start the song, but still it flows, still it flows, still it flows as fresh as ever from my Savior's wounded side. And the minute I began to read the Bible from us, I thought, no, it doesn't. And I'm glad it doesn't. Jesus has bled once for all time. It's not repeatedly applied to us. You know, I know people cover you, cover me with the blood. I am covered with the blood. If I'm not, I'm damned. <laughs> I'm lost. All right. It was shed once in time for all time for all people for all sin. When we turn to the Lord for forgiveness and cleansing, it's the power of what Jesus did on that day at Golgotha on the cross that is effective again towards us today. Now, the next phrase goes into uh, our salvation in Christ, but we're not going to do them today. We're not going to do them now. Let me just round this out. That in everything he might have the preeminence is Jesus first. Is Jesus first? How big in my priorities is this fact that I am a saint, I'm a Christian, I belong to him because Jesus died for me. Because the life of Jesus is in me and his Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. All those other things we mentioned earlier. How big a deal is that for me? That in everything he might have preeminence. I've got two pictures for you. And particularly if you've never yet become a Christian, I want you to consider these pictures. The first is this, an empty cross. Jesus went to the cross, submitted himself to be nailed there, bled, suffered six long hours. From 11 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The first three hours, the sun shone, and he had some conversations with some people. But then at midday, the sun went out. It was darkness. And Jesus was silent on the cross for three hours until he gave that great victory call. It is finished. Now he did that not so I could tell you the story, but so that you could believe it. But so that you might believe in him, and by believing in him, you might have life. And then three days later, an empty tomb. That's an artistic representation because the three empty crosses are behind him. The empty tomb. Jesus rose again from the dead. Well, that's nice. Everybody got to see him again. Yes. But even those of us who have never seen him with our own eyes believe in him who rose from the dead because he is our living God and Savior. He can change your life today just as much as he stretched out his hand to the funeral party of a young man who died and his mother was weeping and Jesus saw them and he was stirred in his heart. He stretched his hand and touched the dead body lying on a pallet and the young man came to life. Jesus can bring you to life today because he's the risen Lord. He can give you new life because he rose again in newness of life and he's the life-giving saviour. So again here today, why don't you call upon his name? Why don't you submit yourself to him? Call him Lord Jesus. He who came and was the image of God amongst us. He who lived amongst us and showed us the Father. He who went to the cross. He who rose again for us. 
who now reigns in heaven, and everything in heaven and on earth is under him. Don't think for one moment the stuff that happens that he, he, he let you just let loose on that one and he forgot about that one. He's in control. He's the sovereign Lord. Submit your heart to him. Many of us, too, we might be going through difficult circumstances, trying times, but who's in charge? The Lord. The Lord of hosts. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord. The song we were hearing again, Karen, the other day, the old song goes back to our much younger days. He reigns victorious, forever glorious. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord. Take a moment to bring your prayer to him before we break bread, please. Say to him whatever you want to say. He's here. He's listening. Jesus, we thank you that you're, you are God in heaven. <laughs> when you're on earth, you said we need to pray and pray to our Father in heaven. Now we can pray to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are in heaven. And yet at the same time, Lord Jesus, you point us this picture of prayer. That we're in a private room, but God isn't a million miles away at all. He's right there with us, seeing, listening graciously waiting for our request so he's got something he can do in response. Oh, Father, bring us to a simplicity of prayer. Even if we go beyond that and above that and in different ways at other times, we want to come to a day-by-day simplicity of prayer that relies upon you as a dear child relies upon their parent. Thank you, Father. Now we take bread. We haven't done this yet. Communion of the saints. It's kind of double-edged that. Communion is the saints being together and enjoying one another's company and encouraging one another and building one another and praying for one another. But it's also when they do this together. We participate in one body. Okay, this probably came from one sheet of stuff at one point in time. If we did this the way I'd prefer to in many ways, we'd have one loaf of bread and we'd tear it up and we'd all have a piece of bread. Because we belong to one body, because we belong to one Lord Jesus. And even the Christians who we don't necessarily kind of get along all that well with, they go to another church and they might do some things differently, they're still part of the body of Christ. If, if it's a church that honors Jesus, it's a church. We give thanks to God for Jesus, whose body was broken for us, and that we now are his body on earth. Remember the blood that Jesus shed for us, what Paul calls so graphically there in Colossians, the blood of the cross. We don't look at a crucifix to keep Jesus there. It's an empty cross. For Jesus came down, was buried, and rose again. He's our living Lord. But we thank you, Lord, for the transaction that was sealed for all eternity by the blood you shed that day.
Amen. Oh. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. That's given you something to read and think about. We'll do a shorter section next time. I'll try and get my pace. This is different. I'm getting used to doing it differently. I need to find the pace of things. Josh Thompson will be here next Sunday. Band, musicians, black scene, David, would you come back and lead us in a final song, please? You ready for this, folks? We're going to stand and we're going to worship our Lord Jesus. We're going to give him praise. Amen.